Anyways, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 9 this morning. Uh, here's, here's the deal. We've got, uh, let me back up as I'll usually say, if you don't have a Bible, there's one under a chair in front of you somewhere. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to put one in your hands. Just stop by the info desk on your way out this morning and we'll, we'd love to give you one. It'd be like a really, really, really early Christmas present. Um, but so Nehemiah chapter 9 this morning, um, to kind of reorient you, uh, we've been going through a series called Rebuilding through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, and this morning we've got a long way to go, about 37, 38 verses. Don't let that scare you. Uh, we'll move quickly. But we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there, so we're going to jump in. And you guys are going to have that song stuck in your head for the rest of the, for the, rest of the day. Okay? Um, so let me make sure we're starting off on the same, same place here. Uh, last week, we were in Nehemiah chapter 8, and, and kind of the story there was uh, the people of God gathered in the town square, and they were weeping, and they were mourning, and they were grieving their sin, and then Nehemiah shows up, they read the law, uh, respond to that, and Nehemiah says, hey, today's not a day of, of mourning, grieving, uh, none of that, you guys can cut that out, because today's a day of celebration, and the reason that, that he told them to stop was because they were entering into uh, some feasts and celebrations that God commanded through his law. So, uh, so they stop their grieving, they stop their mourning, and they go and they celebrate uh, what the Lord has done for them. But here in chapter 9, where we pick up the story, is those feasts and those celebrations, all that's over, okay? And they're going to return to some of that uh, weeping and mourning and grieving that they, they were uh, in last chapter. So let me jump in here. Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to really cover the whole chapter, but we'll kind of do it in, in chunks like we have been. All right, so starting in verse 1. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Feels weird, but whatever. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of the day, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. So they got a, like a half day long church service here, right? Hope you guys are ready for a long one today. I'm kidding. It's a, you guys got to lighten up, right? I know we started kind of heavy, but like, it's all right. We're going to be fine, okay? Um, so these verses first three verses, really kind of, they're like a summary of what the entire chapter is about, right? The people gather and they assemble and they're grieving and mourning uh, their sin and they're, they're confessing, okay? And really the bulk of the chapter we're going to look at in just a minute is kind of the substance of their confession. But uh, what I want to draw your attention to just right first thing out of the gate is again, they were grieving, they were mourning several days earlier. Nehemiah showed up and said, hey, it's time to celebrate, stop your grieving. They stopped but they return to it here in chapter 9, some days later, okay? And the reason I point that out is because it would have been really easy for them, right, after these uh, celebrations and feasts and festivals, it would have been really easy for them to be like, you know what, I guess, I guess that sin wasn't that big of a deal, I guess everything's good, I guess we can just kind of move on and, and carry on with things, right? Sort of return to business as usual, right? But for them to do that, would have been to miss like the significance and the seriousness of their sin. And so here in uh, chapter 9, they, they come back, and they're grieving, and they're mourning. 
right? They're, they're fasting. They put on sackcloth. That's, uh, that was just something they did whenever they grieved and mourned back in that day, the, confessing their sin. And, and the reason I, I point that out, I want to like press a bit here, is because I think it's really easy for us like to feel the weight of conviction at certain times, right? To feel like, like man, there's, there's something like that we know the Lord wants us to confess to him, to confess to, to others. Like we feel the weight and conviction of sin, and yet it's really easy for us to kind of suppress that and just kind of like try to wait it out, right? Like, like we feel like, man, there's this thing that I need to, to bring before the Lord. There's this thing that I need to bring before somebody else to confess. And rather than do that, we just kind of like sit on it and just hope that over time, like that feeling sort of goes away. I've been there, right? And so I think what's crazy is that if you do that long enough, like you just sit on it and wait long enough, like oftentimes the feeling does go away, right? But, but here's what I want you to see. It's not, it doesn't go away because time sort of heals all wounds. Okay, what's happening when we feel the weight of conviction, we feel the burden of that, and we like feel this urge, like I need to do something about this, right? What... What's happening is if we feel that and then we just wait, we sit on it, we suppress it, we don't do anything with it, and then six months down the road, we like don't feel it anymore. What's actually happened is not that time has healed all wounds, but that our hearts have been hardened by sin. Right? And, and you follow that trajectory long enough, you get to the place where, I mean, you don't feel any conviction over sin anymore. And that's a terrifying place to be. Right? So... Quick point of application. We're going to circle back around to it at the end, but, but here it is. We should be diligent. Diligent. Like to deal with the conviction that we feel. Right? And I say this often, but I think it, we just need to be reminded. Conviction is a good thing. Right? Conviction is not, like we hear the word conviction, we're like, oh, I don't want any of that. Okay? Conviction's a good thing. Conviction is the Lord, like, like, reaching in by his spirit and like tugging on our hearts to, to draw us to himself. That's what conviction is. And so we want to be diligent to respond to conviction, right? We want to be quick to confess first to the Lord, right? All sin is ultimately sin against God. We want to be quick to confess, right? Be quick to confess to others as, as needed. Right? We want to be quick to confess because as, as James says, it's when we confess our sins is that like that's where we find healing, right? And we want healing not to be hardened by our sin. So back to the text. So the first three verses, summary of, of everything that's going on up to this point. The people come, they're gathered, they feel the weight of their conviction. Rather than just suppress it, they're like, okay, we got to deal with this now. And so that's what follows in really the next 25, 26 verses, right, is... Really, basically what's happened is it's the people of Israel really kind of telling the story of their, like their history. That's what they're doing. But what they're doing is they're retelling it in such a way, uh, recounting it in such a way that, it, that all of their sin, all of their rebellion, all of their disobedience sort of accumulates. All right, so we're going we're gonna to work through it. This is one of the things I learned this week. This is the fullest summary of the Old Testament in the Old Testament. So if you've ever read your Old Testament, you're like, I don't know what's happening here. Okay, this is a pretty good summary of it, okay? So jump in at verse 6. Again, we're just going to kind of take chunks at a time. So the people are, are gathered. 
They're here to confess, and here's how they begin their confession. Say, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, and the earth and all that is on it, and seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. So at this point, we've got God the creator, right? God the, uh, the one who speaks everything into existence. He's worthy of worship from there. They kind of fast forward into what would be Genesis 12, if you're taking notes. So in verse 7, again, this kind of lines up with the story of Genesis in chapter 12. He says, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. I guess it was Abram first. Sorry, mispronounced. You found his heart faithful before you and made, him, made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite, the Mosquito Bites. And you have, you were paying attention. And you, I used to do that in student ministry. I'm such a child. Okay. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Right, so, so through Abraham, right, God creates a people for himself, and then he uh, promises he's going to give them this land to possess. Okay, and from there, their summary sort of jumps forward, um, really a big jump forward into the book of Exodus. Right? Look at verse 9. It says, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths, as the stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day. And by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them the right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. And you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and you brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So let's do a summary, okay? Because this is the people of Israel gathered here in the city of Jerusalem, right? And they're, they're confessing kind of the, the history and all that they've said so far has been about God, right? And so up to this point, here's what we see. God is the creator, right? He's created everything. And not only that, he's created like this people for himself, okay? For his, his own glory. He saved and delivered those people when they found themselves enslaved in Egypt, he uh, guided them through the wilderness, right, by the, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, like guides them through the wilderness. Uh, he gave them the law in the wilderness so that they would know, like, what is required of them as they relate vertically to God and, and horizontally to one another. And that law was good, right? It was not restrictive. It was for their flourishing. It was for their blessing. It was for their protection, right? He gave them the law. Uh, and then he miraculously provides food for them while they're wandering in the wilderness, right? He provides the manna, and he provides water out of rocks, right? Just miraculously provides for this people. 
It's like, so up to this point, God has shown himself as nothing but good, gracious, kind, generous. Right? And, and how do these people respond? Look at verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your command, commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Right? Their response to God's goodness and his generosity was disobedience and rebellion. Right? One of the authors I read this week, he kind of summarized the people of Israel up to this point, kind of following through Genesis all the way through Exodus and really even beyond. He says these were, uh, the, the people of Israel lacked nothing and they appreciated nothing. Right? Like they had everything they needed. God had sustained them. He'd, he'd saved them. He'd delivered them. And yet here they are complaining, grumbling, rebelling, disobeying. Right? And so in the back half of verse 17, we see God's response to them. But, that's a, that's, a, that's a big but. We did a series in youth group once called Big Butts of the Bible. Probably won't do that here. Again, I told you I'm childish. But, this is a significant though, right? Any, anytime you see but, like but God or, or but because of something God does, like it's significant. We see that here. But, you are a God ready to forgive Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, and they had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness." The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell, right? So God provides for them, sustains them, delivers them. They rebel, disobey, forsake God. And how does God respond? Mercy, provision, grace, kindness. Right? Then in verse 22, the story moves forward some more. It says, and you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them Every corner, so they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. And you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and you gave them into their hands with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. Right, and, and listen to this. And they captured fortified cities 
and a rich land. And they took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Right, so as they're recounting their history again, the Lord makes good on his promise. He, he brings them into the land that he promised he would, he would give them. He conquers their enemies. Like they don't even have to fight, drives out their enemies so that they can have this land. Right? And not only does he give them this land, but it's a good land. It's a rich land. Right? He gives them, uh, they give houses that they didn't work for. They have vineyards, uh, orchards, fruit trees that are ripe, full of fruit that they didn't plant. Right, they just show up and it's there and it's ready for them. Right, the people eat until they're full, apparently until they're fat, which is a good thing. I don't know. I'm down with it. Okay, and like like God gives them everything for their delight. Right, they did not work for it. They did not deserve it. All of it was God uh, lavishing them in grace and mercy. And what was their response? Verse twenty six. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. So God like brings them to this land, puts it all before them and says, here, enjoy. It's kind of like the Garden of Eden, right? God sets man and woman in the garden. He's like, hey, all of this is yours to enjoy. Similar, he gives them this land, rich, full, everything they didn't work for. Sets them down in the middle of it, says, here, take it. And what do they do? More sin, more disobedience, more rebellion, more blasphemy. Right? The text even says that, that God sends them prophets to warn them. Right? I would argue they don't even deserve a warning at this point. But God sends the prophets like, hey, you should really rethink what you're doing. Right? And they don't like it. You've heard the phrase, uh, don't shoot the messenger, right? God sends them a messenger. They don't like God's message, so they kill the messenger. Right? And then God responds again. And, and what can be found, if you track along, this would be kind of like in the book of Judges and kind of in that area. Verse 27, he says, Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard from them or you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times. Many times you deliver them according to your mercies. So because God disciplines those whom he loves, right? he disciplines the people because of their sin, rebellion, he gives them over into the hands of their enemies, which, by the way, is what he promised he would do. Right? So if anything, he's just making good on his word. Okay? He gives them over to the hand of their enemies. And yet, when they cry out to God, right, God raises up, uh, judges to, to save the people of Israel. Right? And, and this, you read the book of Judges, it's like a, a case study in human depravity. 
Like it just gets darker and darker and darker and darker. And yet God continues every time they cry out to raise up a judge to save and deliver. They get darker. They cry out for God. And he meets them there in that space and raises up another judge to save and deliver. That's why the text says many times he does this. Right? The cycle continues on repeat. And at this point, God gives them another warning. And, and again, I would contend they don't deserve a warning at this point. Right? They at least deserve a written citation, probably capital punishment. Okay? But God gives them a warning. Verse 29, it says, And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. And how do they receive the warning? Exactly like you would expect. Right? Yet, they acted presumptuously, did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck, and they would not obey. Right? Once again, they presume upon God's mercy. Right? They run right back to more disobedience more rebellion, more sin. And then verses 30 and 31 sort of summarize the rest of the story up to the point where they find themselves in Nehemiah chapter 9. All right, notice, like, notice God's, like, this is language of patience with this people. Verse 30. Many years you bore with them. Just kind of like holy endurance, right? Many years you bore with them. And warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them in the hands of the people of the lands. And nevertheless in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. The people by all accounts, like deserved, they deserved to be eradicated, forsaken, wiped out, right? And this nation that, that God has established for his glory and his goodness and grace and mercy, and like, they consistently shunned him, right? He has, he has shown them time and time again, like how willing he is to, uh, to just endure with them and like patiently endure and graciously endure and mercifully endure. And they shun him time and time and time and time again, generation after generation. And if, if I'm God or if you're God, we're probably like, we're done at this point. Right? You, and you, somebody burns you once, you're like, okay. Somebody burns you twice. Most of us are probably like, and done with that person. Right? And yet here you've got generation after generation after generation disobeying, rebelling, turning, uh, it says turning their shoulders, stiffening their necks against, against God. Right? And yet he keeps coming back. Right? He, he keeps moving towards them. Because, as, as the last verse says, end of verse 31 says, because he is gracious and merciful. Right, his response time and time and time again to generation after generation after generation of sin, disobedience, and rebellion has been more grace, more mercy, 
more patience. And it's on the basis of like this sort of inexhaustible mercy that the people then kind of make their, their final plea. Right? So, so verses 6 through 31 are basically them just recounting their history, this kind of snowball accumulation of sin and rebellion and disobedience that has led them to the place where they are this morning. And then verses 32 in the 30, through 37 is really just kind of their confession here in the moment. Like, God, here's where we find ourselves. Here's what we need. Look at verse 32. It says, Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. So this is where they find themselves. Right? Yes, they're back in Jerusalem, their land, but they're still under the rule of an oppressive king. Right? They're, they're, not, they're not totally free at this point. They recognize that we're, we're slaves in this land. And the reason we're slaves is because of this long history of sin and disobedience. Right? Like through the generations. And they're, they're basically saying like, hey, the trajectory that our fathers followed and our ancestors followed, we've done the same thing. And we're here. And we're in distress. And we're enslaved. Like the, the reason they were in exile in the first place was because of the accumulation of their own sin and disobedience and rebellion and refusal to submit to God's good law. Okay, but, but here's what I want you to see, and this is where like the whole thing is going to turn. So like, this is what I want you to see this morning. The accumulation of their sin, disobedience, and rebellion. And there was a lot of it, right? Thousands of years. The accumulation of their sin, disobedience, and rebellion through the generations pales in comparison to the abundance of God's mercy for his people. It pales in comparison. Think about it. As they've recounted this story, they kind of began at creation and kind of did the Cliff Notes version all the way up to where they were at this point. They sort of retold the story, recounted the story. As they've told that story, at every point of their sin, disobedience, rebellion, blasphemy, at every point, there's always that, but God. But God showed them more mercy. But God showed them more patience. But God provided them despite their uh, discontentedness with, with what he provided. 
Right? At every point of their sin, rebellion, rejection of him, God moves towards them with more mercy. Right? More mercy. And so they're assembled here in Nehemiah chapter 9. The reason they're assembled to confess and weep and mourn and grieve. Right? The reason they're assembled in this place is not just to sit here and sort of sulk and be depressed and discouraged by their long track record of disobedience. Right? That's, that's part of it. Right? But the whole point of them being assembled here is not just for them to kind of sit and be miserable. The whole point that they're gathered here is because they've, they've looked back on their history and they recognize how God has continually moved towards his people in mercy and kindness. And they see that throughout the generations. And they're here at this place saying, God, here we are again. We've seen how you've acted in mercy in the past. We're trusting you've got some more of it for us right now. Right? That's why they're gathered. Right? They're assembled and they confess in order to be comfort, comforted and encouraged all over again by God's mercy lavished on his people. Right, so these, these verses, and we just read a long history of their sin and rebellion. Right, but these verses are not primarily about Israel and their tarnished record. I'm not saying it's not important. But what it is, is these verses, like that long history of their sin and rebellion and disobedience, it just serves as a backdrop to highlight God's mercy towards his people. Right? Their, their sin and their disobedience and their rebellion, it's just, it's just the backdrop for God's mercy to be highlighted all over again. Okay? And so to, kind of, to move to a little, little bit of application here, here here's what I know just from like my own experience, uh, personal experience, and then like 10 plus years in ministry, is it's really easy to hear like, like these sort of recountings of God's mercy for his people. Like we read the pages of scripture, and we're like, good grief, this is a gracious, patient, kind, merciful God. Right? We, we read that, and we're like, gosh, that is amazing. And yet, in the back of our minds, like, there's something in us that doesn't really believe that that's for us. Or like, maybe even like sitting here in this moment, like you, you see God's mercy lavished on these people over and over and over and over again. You're like, man, that's amazing. And then in this moment, you start to think of all these reasons why you don't deserve that. Why you're not, like why that can't be available to you. Right? You don't know my past, you don't know what I've done, you don't know where I've been, you don't know what I've experienced, and you're right, I, I don't at all. Right? Some of you got some stuff, some of you got some grimy stuff. But I don't need to know. Right? But I know it's easy to, to hear all that and just think, man, I wish that was available to me. Right? And, and in fact, to go back to what I said earlier about, I talked about confession and how sometimes we are, like what we do is sort of like suppress it and, and like don't deal with the conviction we feel. I think one of the reasons we do that is because like in the deepest places in our, in our hearts, like we don't believe we'll be met with the same kind of mercy that we see on the pages of the Bible. 
Like, like when we, we feel that conviction, there's something in us. Like the reason we don't act on it is because I really think in the deepest parts of our heart, sometimes we just don't believe that that kind of mercy is for us. Like God had more mercy back then, but through the years, like he's probably tired and he doesn't want to deal out any more mercy anymore because he's tired of it. All right. See, I feel like his appearance sometimes, like, you know what? I've, no more mercy from me. God is a better parent than I am. And he doesn't, he doesn't run out of mercy. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like we sort of subconsciously believe that our stuff is worse than the stuff in the Bible. Like, that's what we believe. Now, we'd never say that out loud because we're in church. Right? We'd never say it out loud. And plus, like, you know, especially if you grew up in church, you kind of know that verse. It's like, oh, his mercies are new every morning. So we'd never say that out loud. But, like, we feel it. Like something in us is just like, man, I just, I've got some stuff. I got some stuff in my past. Maybe you got some stuff in your present. And so you just like hold on to it because like in, again, in the deepest parts of your heart, what you're believing is that those mercies are not available to you. All right, but, but listen, there is a verse that talks about God's mercies being new. I'm going to read it here in just a minute. But you know, do you know why there's a verse about God's mercies being new every morning? One, because you need them every morning. And two, because they're actually available to you every morning. All right, this is, let me read it. This is Lamentations 3, 21 through 23. This is written by the prophet Jeremiah, who was on the ground kind of when Israel was being, or when Judah was being ransacked and Jerusalem was being destroyed, right around the whole time, like preceding Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, they, they came to rebuild the city. Jeremiah was on the ground when the city was being destroyed. Okay, Here's what Jeremiah writes. Lamentations 3, 21 through 23. It says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. In other words, there's never been a moment when God has not been loving or offer, willing to offer and extend his love. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So I've used this illustration before. I'm going to use it again because I think it's a good one. Plus, I'm like kind of bad at illustrations, so it's one of the few I got. Um, but so I've told you before, like bedtime in the Larkin household is, it's a time. Okay. Like it's, it's, I should not verbalize some of the things that I think trying to put my kids to bed at night. Okay. I, least favorite time of the day by a long shot. Okay. Just dealing with these little sinners all day long. And then you're trying to like corral them and wrestle them and get them into bed. You're just like, yeah, right? That's what bedtime is like, okay? But then something really strange happens in those hours that I'm asleep and into the morning, okay? Because I get up early. I'm like a 5 a.m. guy most days. I get up and I'm like reading or eating breakfast. And around 7 a.m., here's, I'll hear like the little shuffle of feet coming like upstairs. Like all the bedrooms are upstairs at our house. And so I can hear the shuffle of feet on the floor above me. 
And then I hear like the coming down the steps because my kids come down the steps with that zero regard for anybody else that's sleeping in the house. Right? And so those same feet come just trudging down the steps and then they kind of turn the corner into the living room. It's usually, it's usually Elliot, Graham, sometimes Henry. Owen's getting older and so he doesn't really care about us as parents anymore. And so um, don't tell him I said that. That might, might be a good thing. But, but they turn the corner and usually they come right up to the dining room table where I'm sitting at, reading, eating, whatever. And they crawl up in my lap and they just lay against my chest. And the only thing I can think in that moment is how much I, like how deeply I love these little sinners created in my image. Like everything that happened the night before, I'm like, I, like I just don't even remember it. Because now I've got these children that I deeply love here, sitting in my lap. That's new morning mercies. And they're available to you. They're available to you this morning. They're available to you every morning. Right? And maybe you're thinking, yeah, but I don't deserve that. And I would say, you're right. You don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. Not a person in here deserves that. Right? None of us deserve that kind of mercy from a heavenly father. Right? What, what you and I deserve are to be crushed under God's wrath because of our ongoing sin and rebellion and disobedience, just like the people of Israel. Like we followed in their footsteps. We're following that trajectory ourselves. Right? We deserve to be crushed under God's, God's wrath, but because Jesus Christ was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed under God's wrath for our iniquities. Right? Because Jesus absorbed all of God's wrath for, for all of our sin, rebellion, disobedience, because he absorbed all of God's wrath on the cross, you and I are free then by faith to come to God the Father just like a needy child, right? to crawl up in his lap and say, God, it's me again. I know I've asked you a gazillion times, but I'm going to need some more of those mercies if you got them. And here's the promise. They're available. They're there. They're new every morning. Listen, you cannot exhaust God's mercies towards you. Like, you can't. You can, some of you have tried, right? That's my story. Some of us have tried, and God still meets us with more mercy. But here's what the author of Hebrew writes to a, a group of first century struggling sinners like you and me. Here's what he writes. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, look at this. I would circle this, underline this, if you write in your Bible. Let us then with confidence confidence, not 
shyly, not slowly, but without hesitation, without delay, let us in with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So here's the question for you this morning. Question for all of us is where do you need to receive and experience God's mercy? Like where, do you, where do you need to? And I'm not talking like some generic thing. I'm like you, your life, as you sit here in this room this morning, like where do you need to receive God's mercy? And I, I wrote down a couple things. Maybe this will kind of prompt some things in your mind. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe you snapped at your kids on the way to church this morning. And so you walked in just feeling like, ugh. You said God's mercy is available to you this morning. Right? Maybe you were overly critical of your spouse this week. There's like tension in the home, doing that weird thing where you like pass each other in the hallway and like pretend like the other person's not there. There's mercy available to you this week. This morning. Right? Maybe you've been dishonest with an employer or a coworker or in some business dealings that you need to make right. You feel the weight of that? Like there's, there's mercy for you this morning. Right, maybe you're here and you feel trapped in some sort of secret sin or addiction. Something you've been struggling with forever and like you want to tell someone, you just don't know how to tell someone. You feel like because you've been trapped so long that God's got to be angry and disappointed with you. And I would just say there's mercy for you this morning. I don't see a lot of kids in the rooms, but... Maybe you failed to honor and disobey, or maybe you failed to honor and obey your parents. Right, maybe you've been apathetic towards the things of the Lord, just kind of going through the motions, putting on sort of the, the show so that everyone thinks everything's fine. There's mercy for that. Maybe you've been more concerned with chasing the American dream than with living in obedience to God and His Word. There's mercy available for that. Maybe you've been worshiping like any countless number of idols. It could be like money, wealth, materialism, image, career, reputation, some sort of political ideology. Like we, that list could go on for, for a while. Right? Maybe you've been worshiping something other than God, like functionally, looking to that thing to sustain you and give you meaning and purpose and comfort. Right, there's mercy for that. Or maybe you're here this morning and there's just never been a moment where you've really even like acknowledged the fact that you're a sinner and that you need a savior. You've never repented or turned from your sin. You've never put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, to save you from the penalty of your sin. And I would say there's especially mercy available to you this morning. You don't have to get cleaned up first. You don't have to get everything like arranged and perfectly in order and then be like, all right, now God can do something. No, God moves in, in grace and mercy and kindness, and he'll, he'll clear things up over time. 
So I don't know where you need to receive the mercy of God this morning, but I do know that you need it because all of us need it. That's why it's new every morning. And not only do you need it, I know it's also available to you this morning. That's why God offers it. So here's the invitation. I got three super quick, super quick points, all right? Here's the invitation, and then we'll, we'll sing and respond. All right, as you identify where you need to receive God's mercy in your own life, here's the three things. One, just confess to the Lord. That's what the people were doing here in Nehemiah. They're, they're crying out to God. Listen, all of our sin, regardless of what it is, before anything else, it's sin against God. Right? It's ultimately rebellion against God. So our confession always begins, we confess to the Lord. Not because he doesn't know it. Right? God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. Like he's, he knows everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought. That's terrifying. Everything you've ever said. Right? God knows it. So you're not telling God something he doesn't know. When we confess, what we're doing is we're agreeing. That's what confession is. It's an agreement. It's saying, God, I, I want to... I am aligning myself with what you say is right and what you say is wrong. And I confess this area of my life has not been in alignment with what you have for me. That's what confession is. So when you, when you, you see that area where you, where you need to receive God's mercies, you confess it to the Lord. Okay. And then two, confess to others. Right? Some, some of the sin that we need to receive God's mercy for is also sin that we need to ask others forgiveness for. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's friend, family. Maybe it's somebody in this room, right? We just need to ask forgiveness. And so we confess this other person like, hey, I was wrong for this thing that I did, for this thing that I said, for this secret that I've kept from you. Like I'm, I'm wrong. I'm confessing. I'm asking for you for your forgiveness. Okay. But maybe your sin's not against somebody else. Maybe you don't like, need to confess to receive forgiveness. But I would say confession to others is also a, a means for like, us to receive accountability and, and healing. Okay, James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, I referenced this verse earlier. He writes that we should confess our sins to one another so that we may be healed. Right, I think it's worth pointing out, even in the text this morning, that the people of, of of Jerusalem are gathered here in Nehemiah chapter 9, like they're confessing together. They're not just like off in their own little quiet corners, like confessing silently. They're all together, town square, confessing. We're all a bunch of sinners. We need mercy. I think there's a, there's a healing thing that happens when we're willing to confess our sin to others so that they can pray for us, encourage us, hold us accountable to live in alignment with what God says is good and right. All right, so confession for forgiveness, confess to others for forgiveness, but also confess to others for accountability and healing. And then here's the third thing. So we confess to the Lord, confess to others. Here's the third one. Confess with confidence. All right, you can confess with confidence this morning, knowing that because of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, because he absorbed all of God's wrath for your sin, right, you can confess with confidence, right, knowing that there is inexhaustible mercy available to you. Right, there is grace that is sufficient for every sin, every struggle, 
every weakness. And that mercy and that grace is actually available to you. So, so draw near. Confess with confidence. Right? Knowing that, that you can be met with the same mercy, the same grace that we see in the pages of this book. Like it's actually available to you. It's available to you this morning. It's available to you every morning. So confess with confidence. All right, let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning, um, just as we've opened your word, um, I, I pray specifically in this moment that you would prompt us by your spirit to identify the the spaces and places in our life in which we need to receive your mercy. Lord, for some of us, I just believe there's things popping into our mind right now. Like in this moment, things that we need to receive your mercy for. Lord, for some, maybe it's things that they've just held on to for so long just because they didn't, they didn't think they could, could receive that kind of mercy. I pray that you would remind them in this moment that your mercy it really is new every morning. Like It is sufficient. And I pray that you would, like knowing that, that, that they would be emboldened to come to you, to confess to you, and receive that mercy, and the walk in the freedom that that, that gives. And Lord, I, for some, Lord, I, I pray that you would give them the boldness to confess to others. That's, that's the hardest thing. In some regards, Lord, confessing to you is the easy part, but to confess to another, to say, I've sinned against you in this way, or to say, hey, here's where I'm struggling. I need help. That's the hard thing. But Lord, some of us need it. We need it. We need to be, we need to be in right relationship with one another, and we need to uh, be in relationship with one another in, in a such a way that we can hold each other accountable, Pray for one another that we may be healed. And so for some in this room this morning, Lord, would you prompt to confess to another? And Father, maybe there's some here this morning, they've never received your mercy for the first time. There's never been a moment where they have acknowledged that they are sinful, that they need a Savior. They've never cried out to you to receive the grace and mercy that you give. And Father, if that's the case this morning, I pray that you would prompt them to do that. Like, like now in their seats, they can, they can cry out to you. Ask you to save, forgive of their sin. Pray they would do that. And then Father, for all of us this morning, however we come to this, but I pray that you would help us to, to confess with confidence to be assured that like however we come to you this morning that you are willing to meet repentant sinners those of us like come with contrite hearts you, you are faithful and you'll meet us with mercy and grace would you do it again this morning we pray and ask these things in Jesus name Amen